Just kind of catch us up to speed on what's going on in the book of Hosea, in case you're joining us today. Uh, what's going on is, is Hosea is an Old Testament prophet. This is 8th century BC, Old Testament Israel, and he's a prophet in Israel. And God has used uh, his, wife, his marriage to his wife Gomer as sort of a display, a picture, uh, an illustration for what God's relationship to Israel is like. And when you hear that, that God's relationship to Israel is like a marriage, that his relationship to even us is like, like that of a husband, a committed covenantal love, that sounds really well and good. That sounds nice and warm and something that would be a real encouragement to you, and it is in so many ways. And until you read this book, and you find out that Gomer, Hosea's wife, is a serial adulterer and a willing prostitute. And she's constantly leaving the faithful protection, provision, and care of her loving husband. And when this illustration goes forward for God and his people, you find out, oh, we're not the faithful one in the story. We're Gomer. <laughs> we're Gomer. And we're the promiscuous one who's always got this roving eye looking for a better life somewhere else with another love. And yet God continues to chase us down. And the scandal of this story as we read it through the first three chapters is the fact that Hosea always goes after his wife. He's always chasing her down. He's always bringing her back. He's always trying to win her heart. He will stop at nothing to have his bride. There's no cost that's too high for him to pay. He will have her. His love is strong. It's committed. It's covenantal. It's without regret. And the beauty of all of that is this is exactly what God is trying to show to us. What's so breathtaking and what's so staggering as you walk through the first three chapters of Hosea is we find ourselves in the place of Gomer, but we find God in the place of Hosea chasing us down like this song we just sang. He's willing to kick down any door. He's willing to tear down every lie. He's willing to climb up every mountain just to have us as his people and let us know we don't have to go chasing for life anywhere else. That's what's so staggering about all this. That's been the first three chapters. That's kind of catching us up for where we've been over the last few weeks in case you're joining us today. Now, I say all of that because where we pick up today in chapter four, the tone and the texture of this book is about to shift. <laughs> it's about to shift. And in some ways, if you've been with us, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like a sharp right turn and going to go, whoa, 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 I thought this was about love. Think about this way. In chapter four, what we're about to read today is as though a husband has chased down his wife in this crazy adulterous situation. He's brought her home. Forgiveness has taken place. Committed covenantal love is moving forward. But now we really do need to go to some marriage counseling. Right? Now we need to sit in some marriage counseling and talk about, yes, we're together. Yes, we're reconciled. Yes, we're moving forward. Yes, we've dealt with some of this back there. We're going forward. But now we've got to deal with the root of where all this serial adultery is coming from. Like, where, where is it that that's, because that, that, that desire is not just going to go away overnight. So, so where is all of that coming from so that we can deal with this and move forward in faithfulness and the delight of relationship? And so what's going to happen is it's, it's going to feel like Hosea 4 is like God is taking us into the counseling room and he's going to tell us how he feels about our unfaithfulness. It, it's going to be, a, in, fact, in fact, I'll just say it this way. I've been nervous coming up to this day as I've studied this week. If we read this passage right, it's going to sting. It's going to sting. 
If we read this passage the right way, we're going to leave and we're going to be sobered up. But I'll tell you, it's not as though God's love is gone. It's all the more present in this passage because he loves us too much to leave us in unfaithfulness. You see that? He loves us too much to leave us in unfaithfulness. And so, so here's how I want to begin our time together. I want to read Hosea 4, 1 through 14, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in from there. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, the word The words will be on the screen behind me. And the voice of Jesus speaks to us like this. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it, in, uh, and all who dwell in it, languish. And also, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet, let no one contend, and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, and the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because, I have, because you have rejected knowledge and I reject you from being priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. And I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and they are greedy in their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staffs give them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains, and they burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth. Because their shade is good, and therefore their daughters play the whore, and their brides commit adultery. And I will not punish their daughters when they play the whore, nor their brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And the people without understanding shall come to ruin. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come before your word this morning. We ask now by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus, your son, would you illumine this passage to us? God, we just confess that that this is a hard passage to read. We just confess that we're going to need your your help to to, to give us understanding today. Where, Where we're traveling, God, you know because you've given us this word. We're traveling upstream. And Jesus, we need you now to come purify our hearts, lift up our minds, spike up our attention. Holy Spirit, come. Lead us into truth. Bear witness of Jesus. That's what you do. Jesus, your king, shape us as your people underneath the powerful authority of your word. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever had a moment where you had so much in your heart, you had so much in your mind, things you wanted to say to God, things you wanted to kind of offload and and just voice to God, and you were there, maybe you're trying to get in a space to pray, and you didn't have any words. There was stuff in your heart, there was stuff in your mind, there was stuff that you just felt like you just 
couldn't hold inside, but you also at the same time couldn't find the words to say. And so you were getting there in a place before the Lord and you just found yourself without words. If you've had any length of time in the Christian life, if you've had any length of time of trying to pray, if you've had any length of time of trying to express your heart, likely you've had a moment where you had something in there, but you didn't have words for it. This was me a couple of weeks ago. I was... uh, I was up one morning to to read my Bible and pray. I had the whole sort of uh, array set up just right in the environment. I had it on my autumn and my Bible, my journal, my my highlighter and my pen. It was really Instagrammable moment, you know. (laughs) But I resisted best I could. And uh, I wanted to have the whole thing set up just right because I wanted to spend some time with Jesus. I... I've been grappling with some anxieties and fears in my life, and there was ways which I was coming to the Lord that morning, and I just wanted to say so many things to him. And so I sat there in my chair in the living room before anybody else was awake in the house, and I had so much, maybe even restlessness that night, and so I wanted the environment to, again, just be just right so I could finally try to offload that and get into a a peaceful place. And I sat there before Jesus, and I was so frustrated that I couldn't find any words to say. It's like I didn't really have love for him in that moment, it felt like. I didn't really have any direction of, I didn't want to read my Bible, although I had it there in a pristine, Instagrammable space. I I just was kind of there, frustrated and wrecked out in my own mind or heart. And I found myself just kind of looking, where where is honesty in my chest, you know? And then after a while, words came out, and they weren't words I expected to say. They were words that just kind of bubbled up from the overflow of the honesty deep down inside. And I just said to God, I want my life. Again, I'd been grappling with some anxiety and some fears. And I didn't know how else to say anything other than just, I wanted it to go away. God, I want my life. And here's what I'll tell you. In the honesty of reflection in that moment, I said that out loud and I even surprised myself. And then right back, I almost sensed the Lord saying to me, and I want your heart. And I want your heart. You want your life and all the ways that you can kind of put your hands on it the way you want it, the way you want to design it, and just go on about it all and sprinkle me on top of it to make yourself feel better about it. But I want your heart, Chad. I want your heart. And so here's, I'm just kind of bringing you into my own living room, into my own grappling as I prepare this sermon this week. Here's what I'm learning over again in my life. Very often, God doesn't say what I want him to say. You know this. God doesn't often say what we want him to say, and he doesn't often give us necessarily all the things we want in the timing we want them. But here's what God is always ready to do and always does. He always says what's best, and he always gives what's best, even if in the moment what's best is discipline and correction. And it stings. And those are the parts of God that we sometimes want to bypass. He always says what's best. He goes after what I really want from him, even if in that moment, that morning, it was, I need to give him my heart. I need to give him every area of my life. No compartmentalizing, no holding anything back. Just, God, I was made for you. He speaks what's best. He gives what's best, even if what's best in a moment is discipline and correction. And that's exactly what's going on in Hosea chapter 4. God is about to speak up and he's about to confront us in the fickleness of our own hearts toward him. He's going to confront us there. And as he confronts the fickleness and the unfaithfulness of our hearts, he's going to then move forward and he's going to address two groups of people in particular to hold accountable for the care of his people. He's going to address priests, leaders in the church, 
and he's going to address men, all men. And so this is what God's going to address, the fickleness of our hearts, and then hold accountable, particularly two groups of people in this passage. So look back at verse 1 with me. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So this passage wastes no time with jumping to the heart. (laughs) It wastes no time at all. He starts in saying, the Lord has a controversy with you. And so automatically our ears ought to perk up because that's not something that you necessarily want to hear, right? Like no one came to church today thinking, you know what I want to hear from the Lord? He's got a controversy with me. No one was thinking that. So our ears ought to perk up. And so what's about to happen is God's going to speak honestly about how he feels about the unfaithfulness of our own hearts. Right? So so this doesn't mean that God's love is gone. Just because they had a controversy doesn't mean God's love is absent. It doesn't mean he's not committed to us. But it does mean he's lowering his tone because he's going to share on his side of the story what this relationship often looks like and feels like for him. He says there's three things at the core of the rebellion of Israel and three things at the core of our own sinfulness today. He says there's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love, and there's no knowledge. No faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge. And so I want to break each of these down to kind of know what he's saying there when he mentions these. No faithfulness. The sense of the Hebrew word there is integrity. Integrity. And so at this point in the nation of Israel, his people had forsaken They had forsaken honesty or truthfulness. And in its place, they had settled for reputation management. They had forsaken being a truthful people and they had become a slave to whatever their hearts desired in the secret and what they had become accustomed to and good at over time was just learning then to walk back out in public and paint on a face as though everything was fine, right? And because they had become a double-minded, two-faced kind of people, they had become plastic. They'd become a plastic kind of people. Sure, they were keeping up appearances. On the outside, you would assume that everything was going just fine. In fact, 8th century BC, when Hosea steps up, this was a time of prosperity for Israel. They were surely keeping up appearances, but their hearts were numb and their hearts were adulterous toward God. They had no faithfulness. They kept up forms, but inside they were dead. He says they had no faithfulness. The second thing is they lacked steadfast love. The sense of this word is compassion. They, they lacked compassion. So they had become such slaves to their own comfort that they, were, that they had neglected the poor and the marginalized among them. They, they had bypassed showing mercy to the poor and to the needy out of a preference for their own comfort and convenience. And that's the way it always works, right? That's the way it always works. Think about even our society today. The reason that injustice is still allowed to survive among us is because we prefer our own comforts and our own convenience to move past those in the margins and pretend like the problems aren't there or at least that they're not going to affect us. That's why injustice still survives all around us is we we choose our own comfort over, over engagement and awareness. We choose our own convenience and protection over engagement and awareness. And so he says there's no steadfast love, no compassion. The third thing he says is there's no knowledge of God. 
There's no knowledge of God. Now, when he says this, he's not talking about the fact that they didn't know anything about God. That certainly wasn't true. They were Jewish people, the people of God. They knew stuff about God. He's not talking about mere intellect when he says this. He's talking about the fact that they had abandoned a genuine relational knowledge of God. They had abandoned any sense of genuine relationship with God. So what they had done in exchange for genuinely knowing God or wanting to be in relationship with God, what they had done in exchange was they had preferred, I'll keep up the external religious forms to appease my conscience and in my mind keep God off my back so I don't feel bad about stuff, but I'll do enough of the religious forms to keep God within arm's reach so that he's there, at least in my mind, when I need him. I'll play the religious game enough to keep God on enough of a string so I can pull him close when times get tough. There's no knowledge of God. There's just religious games. Just religious games. And so this is, this is the controversy the Lord has with his people. He, he unfolds it and he holds nothing back. And, and here's what I think is crazy. This is God speaking to Israel then, 8th century BC. But it's crazy. I think if we're honest enough to look at this passage, it feels like he's speaking into our current moment into this present space, huh? It feels like he's speaking into our lives. Like it, it feels like if you read this and you understand what he's saying here, it feels like he's reading our mail. There is no faithfulness. Very often, we just prefer to keep up appearances, really believing that true comfort and true pleasure is found in our own desires and our own devices, not in God, but then I'll just keep on appearances to say, I love the Lord and God is always good, good all the time. Yet we're really pursuing other life, other places. He says there is no steadfast love. I mean, the reason that racism is still rampant, the reason that trafficking and a host of other injustices in our city are still present is because very often we want our own comforts, our own blinders, our own convenience instead of becoming aware and engaging around us. There is no knowledge. How often do you and I just prefer the religious forms of saying prayers, reciting confession assurance, singing some songs, listening to a sermon, but then going home to carry on about our life as we want it anyway? And we just did church to sprinkle on Jesus to feel better about the whole thing. We don't really want him. We just want his stuff and to have him bless us all the time. It feels like he's reading our mail. And so this is his, this is his charge against his people. Now, here's what's interesting. In a moment of like marriage counseling, as I said, this would be. <laughs> in any moment of marriage counseling, when things get honest like this, there's always a tendency for the one person who's speaking up to share things like this. And then for the other person who's listening to, to sort of sit there and at the, at the moment where they're finished to start posturing and deflecting and blame shifting and then trying to prove, well, it's not really as bad as they say, Right. There's always that tendency in us to kind of go, whoa, 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 I don't know about all of that, right? And so when you hear something like this, maybe you're, you're feeling this with me, you're hearing this and you're feeling this with me, and maybe that's inside of you a little bit. Like you hear what the Lord is saying and you recognize some of those things in your own heart. And instead of feeling all of it and really acknowledging that the Lord is right about these things, there's something in you that wants to go, whoa, I, maybe, and you want to posture and you want to budge and you want to negotiate. Here's what's crazy about that. It's like God knows that tendency is in us because look at what he says next in verse four. He knows that that tendency of posturing and deflecting and blame shifting is in us. And in verse four, he says, yet let no one contend, let no one accuse. 
Translation, don't try to posture. Don't try to blame shift. Don't try to prove. Don't do it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm confronted, when I'm corrected by something in my own life, there's always that moment where I want to listen to what the person is saying to sort of show that I'm humble. But then as soon as they're done, go, well, I mean, come on. I mean, it's not that bad. Or, oh, I see what you're saying, but there's also this other thing I did that was really good. Or, well, and the Lord is speaking up and saying, none of that. None of that. And see, here's the reality. When the Lord speaks up like this, when God, when God confronts us with his word, when the power of the spirit convicts you in your heart about your faithfulness to the Lord, what the truth of the matter is, is God is the only sober one in the room. God's the only sober person in the room. The rest of us are just busted up and banged up and bruised and distorted by our own sinfulness. We don't see clear. He's the only one who sees the situation for what it really is and into our hearts for what they really are, despite the fact that we want to believe the best about every moment. The Lord's not trying to expose to leave us. He's trying to expose to bring out more faithfulness. He's the only sober one in the room. And so he has this controversy against us. Now remember, none of these words are being spoken to sort of leave you there in shame. All of these words, if we were to, again, go back and rehearse the first three chapters of Hosea, all these words are being spoken with reckless love, with mad pursuit, with abandon of God, winning us and having us as his own. He's saying this because he loves us with intensity and ferocity. I want to bring this forward so we stop playing games and enjoy the delight of relationship that you really want and that I have saved you for. And so he brings this forward. Now, here's what's interesting, and here's where this gets a little bit more difficult. As I read this week in this passage, there's moments where I kept looking for a moment where I could tell some jokes. <laughs> like, oh, man, people are going to want jokes on Sunday, you know? And I kept looking for the moment where the passage would let up, and I could step off the gas and kind of just kind of, you know, give us a moment of levity and then go back in. I can't find it. It's not in Hosea 4. If there was ever a passage of scripture that put me to the test all week long on what I believe about the preaching moment and faithfulness to God's word, it's Hosea 4. It's Hosea 4, right? Because I think in order to be faithful to God's word, you have to be faithful to the tone of God's word. And at no point in this passage does he let off the gas. Like he, he just doesn't. And so he moves from this controversy that he speaks broadly to all of us about love and faithfulness and and knowledge of God. And then he now holds accountable two groups of people. He speaks narrowly now to two groups of people, priests and to men. Priests and to men. We'll take each one in turn as the passage does. So look back down at verse four. He says, for my contention is with you, O priests. You shall stumble by day. The prophet shall also stumble with you by night. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you for being priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. Talking about the priests. I will change their glory to shame. They feed on the sin of my people. And they are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the whore and not multiply. 
because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away understanding. Okay, so this is a serious word from the Lord. Because leadership of God's people is serious to God. This is a serious word from the Lord because leadership of God's people is serious to him. You think about this present cultural moment that we're even caught up in, in the, in the fact that leadership is almost ceasing to mean anything, right? The dignity of leadership is constantly being called into question at every level. I don't have to give you examples. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And so you then take that down to the church and to God's people. The misuse of spiritual leadership is a serious matter to God. The Bible is clear that God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked, especially by those who stand in his place in service to his people. God will not be mocked. And so those who lead among the people of God are to be those who set an example of faithfulness to God. Not perfection, not perfection. None of us are that, but set an example of faithfulness to God. And then also give an example of God's heart of compassion for his people. And so I know as I say this to you this morning, there's some of you in the room that, that, that even talking about right leadership in the church hits really close to home for you. Like, I know that there are some of you in a room this size that maybe you've been a part of churches before where that you've been hurt, you've been manipulated, you've been deceived, deceived you, you, you've been wronged. And I just want to say this, if, if that's you, if that's your experience, I'm really sorry. It is not supposed to be that way. And I know that this passage and even just hearing that's not going to correct all the kind of bangs and bruises and wounds that you, I know that's not going to correct all of that, but this passage ought to be a real comfort for you in knowing that God takes great care of you. God stands up, God defends you, God will heal you. It's not supposed to be that way. He can be trusted, even though that leader in the past could not be. God can be trusted and God God takes very serious leadership over his people. In fact, the scriptures tell us, if I could read more passages this morning, I don't have time for, you'll find out through scriptures that God will call into account everyone who's led in his church for how they took care of his precious people. God will call into account every leader. That's why God gets so serious in verse nine. He says, like people, like priests. He says, listen, the reflection of leadership often is a reflection then in the congregation and you best not lead my people astray. They are blood bought with my son. He takes very serious this stuff. And, and so here, here's what I just as a side note, the clearest application for what God is talking about for us in our church are the elders who lead the, this church. It's talking about the elders who lead this church. And so I just want you to hear my heart, my heart and the heart of all of our elders. I want you to be able to know this, that we as much as God would let us, we want to feel the weight of his care for this people, you. We want to feel the weight of his care for you and then be chastened and be shaped accordingly. We want to be a reflection of God to you. We want that. And so I'm not saying that to you if you're a guest here to say that this is a perfect church or that all of our elders have arrived. That's certainly not true. We aim to always be honest about our own struggles and our fight for faith. We're the first ones to need the gospel of grace in Jesus. We're the first ones. But I am saying that to you so that you would know that the character and the holiness of our elders is a big deal to us. It's a big deal. And so you ought to be able to know what you can expect from the elders of the church. You ought to know what you can expect. 
And so there's two passages of scripture. We won't read them today just for time, but I think they'll be on the screen behind me. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. These are two passages of scripture that you ought to know about that you ought to underline, that you ought to read through so that you can know what are the character qualifications of those who would lead in God's church? What what, what should these men look like? And then here's what I would just pray for us. And please pray for us that we would be shaped according to God's word. We would look like what those passages say we should look like. Please pray for us. And so the last thing I want to say is this on this matter is, I mean, When Hosea mentions this here, please know that leaders in the church are not those who are ever exempt or get special status or who are above being questioned or held accountable. Eldership does not equal special privileges. It does not equal special privileges. God is holding account those who led in his his people. And so if ever, and so here's here's the invitation and here's the freedom for the church. If ever you see a leader or an elder in our church acting out of step or living out of step with obedience to God, you have complete freedom and complete invitation to call that leader into account and to bring that to our leadership. Absolutely true. You will never be shunned. You will never be silenced. You will never be stiff-armed for trying to protect the integrity of our church or its leaders. That's never the case. Amen. In this cultural climate of just leadership screw-ups all the time, and this is all the more important, and we just want to invite you into this. I mean, I need my heart protected. Our elders need our hearts protected. The sanctity and the dignity of our church under the lordship of Jesus need to be fought for and protected. Please fight for us, pray for us, and never be hesitant to call into account when you see something out of step with God's design. Amen? Amen. Now, God moves from holding priests accountable to then men in general. Men in general. Look, look back down at verse 14. He says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and they sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and the people without understanding shall come to ruin. <coughs> Now, obviously, there was some stuff going on in the present reality of Israel then. But the reality is, it's not as though that the women in this moment, or the women in general in this current moment, aren't held responsible for their own sin. They certainly are. What Scripture is saying is that there's a unique way in which God holds men accountable for the care and the dignity of a society. There's a unique way in which God holds accountable men for the care and the dignity of a society. This has always been God's model through Scripture. So think back to the garden of Adam and Eve. Think back to the garden. When the fruit was eaten that God had forbidden, who did God come to first? Who did God speak to first to give an account for what was going on? Adam. Adam. So Eve ate the fruit first and then Adam. But when God comes, he speaks to Adam because Adam was the one he'd established there as the protector and the provider. And he watched idly and watched passively as sin entered in and destruction follows. And so God calls him into account. Now, this isn't to say that God thinks about men on a higher level than women. That's not true. The scriptures are very clear that God has created both male and female, co-equal, co-equal in dignity, co-equal in worth. But it's also true that God has made us distinct in roles and responsibilities. So co-equal in dignity, co-equal in worth, but distinct in roles and responsibilities. 
And so God has established us that we, as men, would be those who are the leaders, initiators, protectors, and providers for the common good in our families and our society. That's not to say that we're the only leaders, we're the only initiators, only protectors, only, it's not to say that we're the only ones, but we should take forward a step of responsibility in these ways. And, and I don't think you can argue that when men drop the ball here, when, when, when men drop the ball, I'm thinking about my own, my own busted background of five times fatherless. When men drop the ball, in leading, protecting, providing, initiating, when men drop the ball, societies and families are the ones who suffer. Our own cultural brokenness bears this out. Fatherlessness runs rampant, right? We're in a moment where sexuality is being constantly redefined by whatever you want is what's allowed and what goes. Sexual liberation, the sexual revolution was supposed to be a, a bill of liberation, but it's actually turned out to make us more slaves to confusion and more slaves to our own desire. And no one's really free. No one's really cared for. No one's really loved. We're all more anxious, depressed, and confused than we've ever been as a country, as a society. The epidemic of pornography shreds our minds, manipulates relationships, makes image bearers of God out to be objects to be consumed. The Me Too movement points to a horrific injustice and the list could keep going. And so you and I, we, we, we don't find our identities. We don't find who we are on this conquest of pleasure. That's not how it works. Who we are and the care of one another comes and only makes sense under the authority of God who tells us who we are as those who bear his image with all dignity and worth. And so men, men, please hear this with me. I mean, I fought through this in my own soul and I want this for our church. There's been long, long standing of witness to this in this pulpit over the history of this church. Men, hear this. God has not given you or me strength to hijack dignity, exploit, or oppress. But God has given us life to glorify him as a leader, as a protector, and as a provider for the common good of family and society. And may we be the ones in this moment that run against the grain and stand up for a God-honoring sexuality that's only expressed in the sanctity of covenant marriage. Like That's where dignity is protected. That's where pleasure is really found. God's not trying to hijack pleasure from us. He's the one who created it in the first place. The watchmaker knows best how the watch works. Right? Like, this is his design. And so, men, like, I, I, can't, I can't belabor this anymore. Just please hear this. Where, where there's hidden sin, where there's areas in your life where you're going passive and watching things idly happen, and hear the word of the Lord this morning. And I'm in this fight with you. I'm in this fight with you. And so Hosea, Hosea he speaks to a, a broad controversy with his people. He speaks to priests. He speaks to men. And so this word stings, doesn't it? Like I told you, if we read the passages the right way this morning, like it would sober us. And so I know there's some of you coming like, I wanted happy church today. <laughs> It's Super Bowl Sunday, you know? I'm ready to get my football food on and soft pants and go for it. <laughs> I wanted happy church. I thought Hosea was about the love of God. That's why I kept coming back. Hang with me. This is absolutely about the love of God. 
This is absolutely about the love of God and the fact that he loves us too much to leave us to ourselves. Let me show you how this has to do with the love of God. Hebrews chapter 12 and we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 12, listen to this word. My, verse five. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary. Don't be tired of being reproved or corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he what? He loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons. And what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all of us have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. And so the Hosea comes forward and he speaks, he speaks as a prophet of God into even our current moment. Discipline. Words of discipline. But listen, they're words of discipline, not punishment. The two are very, very different, although we associate them often. These are words coming forward of discipline, not punishment. Punishment says this. Go away until you can get all this figured out. Punishment says, bear this shame, bear this misfortune until you can come back and show yourself to be better. That's what punishment says. That is not how God talks to his people. That is not how God speaks to those who look to him and trust. And so some of you just need to hear that today because you feel like there's stuff going on in your life and the Lord is punishing you for that. Punishment is not how God treats his people. Discipline is different. Discipline says this, you're mine and I love you too much to leave you to yourself. So stay right here with me. Don't go anywhere. Stay right here with me and I'll show you the way. That's discipline. You're mine. I love you too much to leave you to yourself. You don't go away. You don't try to figure, you stay right here with me and I'll show you the way. That's very, very different. Listen, Jesus has taken every ounce of punishment for our sins. Every ounce of punishment. There is no, just conceive of this. There is no punishment left in the heart of God for those who would look to Jesus. No punishment. No punishment. Only grace. Only grace and the fatherly presence to discipline us over time. And so if you're a believer here today, if at any point in, in, in going through this sermon, in any point in reading God's word, you've been convicted, you've been confronted in your own sin, listen, don't silence that. Don't silence that. Don't negotiate. Don't try to prove or to wiggle out from underneath. Hey, hey, sit under that and recognize that's the Lord's goodness and the Lord's love for you to discipline you, not leave you to sin, but to call you forward to increased closeness to him. Don't silence that. Men, don't silence that. If you're not a believer here today and you're going, man, interesting day to come to church. Here's what I want you to hear today from this word. God loves his people. God is fighting ferociously for the purity of his church. 
I know so often we're called hypocrites out there. Hey, listen, it's true. We don't live out everything we believe, but God is fighting against our hypocrisy to make us a truthful people. God doesn't stand for it. And so if you're not a believer and you're here today, know this. God fights for the purity of his church. He takes leadership really serious. God can be trusted and he sent his son to welcome you into all of this. You don't have to run on your own anymore. God is a father who steps forward not to punish, but to discipline. And he does that in love because he receives as sons.